Dear listener, before we start today's episode, I want to tell you about a resource I've created, which I want to share with you for free. I'll tell you what it is and how to get it. If you're not already writing tests for your Rails code, you're probably aware that testing can help you ship your work faster and with fewer defects. Because testing is such an in-demand skill, but since so few developers know how to do it properly, I've created a resource for you called the Beginner's Guide to Rails Testing. This guide is a short, downloadable book which answers the most common Rails testing questions that beginners tend to have, including which testing framework should I use, RSpec or Minitest? What level of test coverage should I shoot for? What are the different kinds of Rails tests? What are all the Rails testing tools and how do I use them? My guide covers these questions and several others. To get the beginner's guide to Rails testing, go to railstestingguide.com. Now on to the episode. Josh Thompson, software developer from Golden, Colorado. Josh, welcome. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad Pleased to, to have be you here. here. All of those things that yeah, I just combined yeah. together. So my first question: I have kind of a, a weird obsession with with certain things, including the elevations of towns. And so I'm curious: what is the elevation of Golden, Colorado? Because I assume it's uh, not sea level. It is not sea level. So Denver is the mile high city in air quotes, uh, which would put it at 5,280. And I think they did a little oddly convenient building of like exactly the landscape where they took that particular reading. Like it's right on the front capital. It's probably like 20 feet taller than the rest of the surrounding mm-hmm. area. But Golden is a little than Denver. So it's, I think, about maybe 5,500 or. Yes, it's like 300 feet higher than Denver proper because sometimes we'll get a bunch of snow. And so like we'll have like shoveled out the car, have boots on, we're ready to go into the city. And then as we drive down the hill or the train drops out of Golden, it's like completely dry. There's not an inch of snow on the ground. So it's close enough that there's a substantial weather or it's close in elevation, but distance enough that there's substantial uh, weather differences sometimes. Hmm. And are you like more in the mountains? Because I know De- Denver is like flat. It's like right up the up against the edge of where the Rockies start. Yep. Um, so Golden is the last little stop you drive past as you're driving from Denver up into the mountains. So you would take I-70 out of Denver that kind of comes up a little bit of a hill as you're heading into the mountains. And then right before you get into the foothills, you'll see an exit for for golden. So my wife and I love it. We feel like we have the best of both worlds. Cause we have like, it feels like mountain town, little, like small dense blocks. And like, it feels like a mountain town, but then we're 15 minutes from, from Denver. Yeah. That's so, pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I fly from Michigan to Las Vegas a lot cause my work is based in Las Vegas and I always like to, I, I enjoy the part of the flight where we go over Denver and then start to see the Rockies. And depending on what yep. time of year it is, there might be just like a ton of snow. It's yeah. always so crazy to see that. Because, you know, it might be like October. There's no snow anywhere. And then you go over the mountains and it's just all white and it's so cool yep. looking. Yep. It's when my when we moved out here, we moved here from Washington, D.C. And all of our friends and family were like, oh, the weather. Like my wife doesn't like really cold weather. Um, they're like, it's going to be terrible. Like all we know about Colorado is snow, 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 snow. Um, but all of that snow that tends to sit in one's consciousness when thinking of Colorado is up at elevation. It's like ski resorts and stuff. So very far from here. Uh, so we found the weather in the winters, especially to be mild because it'll snow a little bit or maybe a lot sometimes, but the, the humidity is really low. So it never is like that bone chilling, cutting cold that we got used to on the East coast like DC, Boston, New York, uh, it just cuts through you. Mm -hmm. And then it comes and then it's sunny the next day. And so there's like Mm -hmm. 
tons of snow out, but the like you know the sun is out and it's like glistening off of everything. I've done more shoveling snow in like t-shirts because on the next day because it's so warm. Interesting. Like, yeah, so it's it's quite mild. It still gets cold, but it's not nearly as intense as a lot of people think it like so, is. So do you like ski or snowboard or anything like that? Mm-hmm. Um, I used to when I was. My dad was in the military when I was growing up, so he spent some time on the Air Force Academy, and so I lived near there, and so when I was younger, I skied a lot. But now that I have to pay for it all myself, I don't, because <laughs> when we first moved here, you have to get, like, so we don't have a car with a roof rack, so you'd have to add a roof rack, then you'd have to get skis, then you need to get the, like, clothing to keep you dry and warm, and then you need to get a season pass, and the season passes are, like, 500 bucks. Uh, and then the ski equipment can be like a thousand dollars. So basically it would either spend, you know, at least $2,000 to get started or my primary activity is rock climbing. So winners for rock climbers are just training times. You just, you're like, well, this is my training season. I'm going to like get ready for spring. Um, so I, I, I can, I can ski. Oh, and then also the trap. So like, if you try to go up at skiing at the same time everyone else is skiing, you're just going to mm. sit in a yeah, bet. parking lot, basically, on the highway. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I've had uh, Nate Berkebeck on the show a few times. Mm-hmm. He lives mm-hmm. in Taos, New Mexico. That seems like might be better because, like, well, his whole situation might be better because, like, you know, Taos, Denver, like, Taos, probably way less population density, yep. obviously. Absolutely. Um, and then he has the freedom to like go skiing just on a Tuesday or something like that. That would be, that would be great. It's probably pretty dead uh, yep. during that time. I have some friends that when they, they ski a lot, so you'll ask them how much do you ski? And they'll be like 40 days, 50 days. And they're all getting up there during the week um, with like a flexible work schedule. There's some ski resorts that you can get to pretty like within 30 minutes maybe. So they'll like do an early morning session, ski for a bit and then come down and like work a later day, like a not quite complete day that starts a little bit later than a normal work day. Yeah, I know a guy who does that. I'm super envious of his lifestyle. If you can make it work, it's the way to go. Not everybody can, but it is the way to go. Yeah, yeah, if you can. It's real nice. Um, okay, so let's get into the the episode a little bit. Um, we were going to talk about, so you, you had sent me an email saying that you had done some like teaching and training in the past and stuff like that. And I've done that kind of stuff too. So maybe we could talk about that a little bit. Um, what kind of teaching and training have you done? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think, do you know where someone's like, Oh, this is my thing, but they're not exactly sure how or why it became the thing. Mm -hmm. Like they just kind of stumbled into it. So I feel like that's a little bit of me and teaching and training. I'm not classically trained as a teacher in any meaningful way. I've never been taught how to teach. Um, but I've done a lot of teaching as a function of my day job. Uh, so years ago, I worked in a climbing gym and did a lot of teaching unofficially and officially there. Like, you know, you'd have people come in and learn how to tie the knots and deal with the ropes and all that. Um, and then... Since then, I so I went to the Turing School of Software and Design in 2017 in Denver. And as I was going into there, like I feel like if I haven't written something down, I don't necessarily trust myself to have a working understanding of it. Like I may have run the right commands, I may have like modded the right files, but I just don't quite know that I understand it. So I, I was always very careful to like write down, kind of like showing your work in a math problem. I would be like, now here, now we got this error, now we're going over here. Um, and so I'd throw those in a GitHub gist because that was the easiest way to create a shareable document. Um, and then I found that I, those started getting kind of like shared around. And then someone would come with like, oh, what, like, why did you do this? And then I would kind of explain that. And um, then that, so that started kind of in programming school, basically. I found myself creating things that it wasn't teaching per se, but it was like a written resource that would at the end lead to someone learning something. Um, and then that just continued through working. Um, and then like on the job, I would work with when we had like less experienced engineers or more experienced engineers and there's something that I had, I would, I would volunteer to be like the, the one that teaches like a lunch and learn on this new thing that we're doing. And then of course, to not make a complete fool of myself, I would like the day before be like, oh crap, like I have to go like read this thing. So it's not that I, I knew it super well. It was that I just figured out how to like 
run the thing and like figure out like a hello world version of it and could kind of like guide people through that on their own like machines or their own environments. And they'd be like, Oh, I get it now. Um, and what that kind of led to, I also love learning. So when I'm under skilled for a task, I'm like, cool, I've got to go learn something. Uh, and it feels like it feels like we're a little underskilled on teaching as like in the industry right now. Cause I know a lot of folks that like, like it's the, the, it feels like everyone wants to be a little bit better at what they, like no one feels adequate. Maybe some people feel adequate. I often don't feel adequate. Many of my friends don't feel adequate. And I know folks with substantial experience that sometimes don't feel adequate. Um, yeah. So it feels like there's still room to be done on teaching because if you can yeah. quickly convey information to someone like useful information in a short period, like, that's it's beautiful their 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 yeah. skills are forever improved well i oscillate between I, I don't like feel adequate or inadequate i oscillate between feeling like the smartest person in the world and the dumbest person in the world yep depending on what exactly i'm working on and how it's going and stuff like that yeah that's interesting like um i think a lot of times people are held back from like they might feel a desire to like go speak at a meetup group or something like that, but they're hesitant to because they don't feel like they are an expert in anything. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I always tell those people that you shouldn't try to wait until you're an expert because you'll probably never feel like an expert in anything, even if yep. other people perceive you as an expert on that thing. Yep. Um, and mm-hmm. when they're not an expert, that's one of the best times they remember what it's like to not know the thing that they're trying to convey so even though, yeah, I, I find I would vastly prefer to learn something from someone who just figured it out and is like kind of close to where I'm at than like the world expert at whatever. Because I've, I've followed or I've tried to follow along some of those experts and you get lost so quickly. And unless you can like raise a hand or like slow them down. Um, and it's not that they're like out of touch or ungracious or unsympathetic. It's just that they're like, oh, yeah, I well, they have the famous. Uh, I don't remember curse the last of, time I struggled to do this thing. They have the famous like, curse of yeah. knowledge. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, where you yeah. you can't um, remember what it's like to be a beginner, and so you're a little out of touch. I've I've read a lot of documentation recently on uh, on Docker and Kubernetes, where it's very evident that the person writing the documentation has been cursed with the curse of knowledge because they're talking about all this stuff, and they're not like defining terms and stuff like that. And they apparently have forgotten that, like, not everybody knows this stuff. So you mentioned Docker documentation is written by experts who are kind of falling for the curse of knowledge. So there's a little bit of a gap. I, when I've been able to influence the creation of that kind of documentation, I've found that if you can get a second pass through it with a non-expert, either it be like being like a less experienced engineer on the team or an outsider to the team, and the person can just go through and try to like, you know, use the documentation, set up the set up the app, you know, do whatever the purpose of the documentation is, and then just flag when they have questions or something is unclear or undefined, um, and then have the expert come back and answer those particular questions. That has led to world class documentation in my experience because you still then you get the expert moving at the expert speed. But then um, you have someone like me who doesn't know the thing and can be like, what do you mean here? What do you mean here? What, what is this actual thing? And then when they answer it all, um, it's a really powerful and detailed document. Um, yeah, that's a great way to put it. Um, in my teaching experience, like sometimes I'll like go teach a class to some team or something and I'll teach it the first time. And the first time, it's usually pretty rough because it's mm-hmm. never had contact with actual students before. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the classic mistake of uh, the teachers make is, like, trying to teach too much in too little of time. And so, like, yep. I've had that experience. Similar thing with conference talks. Like, the first time I give a certain conference talk, it often doesn't go great. And then yep. I have to, like, talk with the, with, the, with the people on the other end and say, like, okay, hang on a second. Like, what was uncl- – oh, I said this, but I didn't explain what that was, yep. blah, blah, blah. And so I have to yep. refine it and then go back and, and do it a second time. And, of course, the more that happens, um, the better it goes. 
but you have to have yeah. that like content with the the contact with the actual students in order to know whether it's it's actually clear. Yep. I I feel like that like the the iterative process of teaching is like the the most beautiful part of teaching. But it's easy to like be like, well, this is my this is my curriculum, so this is what I'm teaching. And then if it if it seems out of step with the students, um, it can sometimes feel easy to like blame them or feel mm-hmm. like you as students are to blame, rather than like, well, maybe the like you know maybe there's a little bit more work to do from the from the instruction side of things. That conference talk point, I so I gave my first talk at um, RubyConf last year. But we had to pre-record it because of COVID. Uh, we pre-recorded and then submitted it, and then you know it became available at a certain time. And I felt like I was trying, like it was a tremendous effort from the entire team to pull off like an entirely remote conference. I never even attended a remote conference like that. But I found it so difficult to record a half decent conference talk because I'm so reliant. I realized I'm so reliant on feedback from the people that I'm talking with. Like little mm, like mm-hmm. kind of check-in questions and this and that and the other thing. And then just when it was complete silence the entire time, I just felt like I was talking to a wall. And like my my emotional energy kept like going down and down and down. I couldn't mm-hmm. even bring myself to watch the whole talk when I was done. I was like, you know what? This is like take number seven. I'm tired. Like it's taken me so much longer than I planned. I'm just shipping it off. And I, I apologize to anyone who watched it all the way through to the end. But supposedly some people didn't. It wasn't all terrible. Mm-hmm. I yeah. Didn't believe them. I've had similar experiences. So I've given in-person conference talks. In fact, that's the only kind of conference talk I've given. But I've also mm-hmm. done like internal talks to companies oh, yeah. uh, remotely. Yep. And like, frankly, I really don't like to do that because there's just no like feedback. You can't see yeah. the people and like you can't, you can't like read people's body language and stuff like that. It's just not the yeah. same. Or even like see that they smile a little bit necessarily if you try to say something funny. Or you try to say something funny that's not, but they see what you're trying to do and give you like the courtesy laugh. <laughs> like, you need that. Yeah, yeah. And like you can't even tell really if people are paying attention. Like do people even care? That's the big thing. Like you have no indications of like whether people actually care. And like yeah. I feel like that's one of the like one of the big like I don't know. When you're talking to other people like you need to like read these social cues including like do these people care about what i'm saying because if not i should stop talking right you don't want to waste their time yeah and so like those remote talks are really tough that's why i've like never participated in a remote conference and i would put conference in quotes because it's really not the same thing like i appreciate what they're doing like it's maybe better than nothing and maybe some people like it but like it's really not the same thing at all so i'm really pumped that like RubyConf is happening uh, in person. Oh, and you know what? RubyConf is happening in Denver. Are you going to go to uh, to RubyConf? Yes, absolutely. I have it here on my calendar. I, I, I got like a year-long whiteboard calendar thing, and I have it blocked off on November 8 through 10. So, yeah, nice. I, I'm really excited. I haven't – I feel like – like I have a lot of friends in the Ruby community, like Turing grads that I haven't seen in a long time or people that I only know online and haven't met in the real world. And since I'm here in Golden, just a couple minutes from Denver, I'm hoping to somehow leverage those two things and like make a good time out of it. Because yeah, yeah, I, I my city is hosting RubyConf. It's going to be great. Yeah, it should be great. I have permission from my wife to attend. And we might even all go nice. to it depending on like COVID stuff and all that. Oh, um, that's, nice. That's going to be great uh, Any in any case because it's been so long. You know, I developed kind of like a social group at these conferences going. In, yeah. in, in 2019, I spoke at a whole lot of conferences. And like mm. I started to see the same people at, at these conferences, especially the Ruby conferences. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of interesting. It's like, you know, I, I don't know about you, but like, okay, you mentioned pre-show that you have at, at least one kid. Um, mm-hmm. And like... I have kids and I see my friends so infrequently, you know, like I might see even, even somebody who lives just a few minutes away, I might see them Mm -hmm. like three or four times a year. And so like I would go to these conferences and I would see these people who live in other parts of the country, like just as frequently as I see my friends (laughs) who live like 30 minutes away. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's a really cool like I don't know. There's as much as like the internet has subsumed everything. There's still something quite special and delightful about time in person, even it, and maybe it's even something about the conference where it's like slow, low pressure time. Cause you know, you're going to see each other a couple times. Like it's not like, uh, you know, driving through town for an hour and grabbing a quick lunch and being like, so catch me up on the last year of your life. Like you right. can't do that. Um, but there's, there's something about the cadence and the, the tempo and the pressure or lack thereof, of, um, seeing the same kind of people at conferences. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. I like it. So I'm looking forward to that. And I'm, I'm just hoping that like this new, like Delta variant is not like going to mm. throw a wrench into things. We'll see. It seems yeah. to not quite be, I don't pay attention to the news very much, but nope. it seems to not quite be here yet. I guess, you know, obviously we'll, we'll be hearing about it if it, if it becomes an issue. Yeah, I use my my friends are. I had a conversation about this recently with some friends. I I mentioned they're like, "Did you hear about such and such?" And I was like, "No, tell me more, please." And they're like, "How did you not hear about it?" I was like, "People like you tell me the things that I need to know. So tell me about this obviously important thing." And then they did, and now I, that was where I heard about the Delta, the Delta variant. Um, yeah, and it works out. Yeah, so much stuff in the news is just like some like super bummer thing that only affects like four people on the planet and it just like makes your day worse and doesn't help anybody like oh like some uh terrible thing happened yeah. to these three kids in uh washington uh, yesterday and it's like oh great now i'm sad and like nobody benefits from me knowing this terrible thing yes yep it's um yeah, there's something about I don't know. There's books have been written on this phenomena, so <laughs> we we yeah we. we can, well, it shows all about rabbit I, holes and uh, yeah yeah exactly. That's actually something that I've been loving about Golden. So my wife and I bought a house here in November, and for a long time we we're like, Meh, we don't like well, and housing is really expensive right now, uh, kind of everywhere, but especially Golden for a bunch of reasons. But um, my goal, so I, I bike around Golden all the time. I rode my bike around like 17 miles just in the city yesterday um kind of quote unquote on my way home from work even though i spent like two hours on my bike <laughs> um and and then when you mentioned you might have your your wife and kids coming out I, uh downtown golden has clear creek that runs through it and clear creek is a great place for tubing so like i like pretty much every day of the week that you're there during the when it's warm you'll see people riding inner tubes floating down the creek falling out, jumping back in, sometimes swimming, uh, sometimes bumping into rocks intentionally, sometimes trying to avoid them. It's a great time. But, uh, oh, and then there's a bike rental place downtown as well. So I'm, I'm, I, when folks come to town, I say you should visit the creek or you should rent a bike and then pedal around and at some point swing by Clear Creek to like stick your feet in and kind of watch the festivities or hang out on a blanket in the grass near nearby. And uh, I'll often like burn a very pleasant afternoon with some snacks and like a book uh, and just sit on the, like kind of on the bank of the Creek um, and watch, watch the world go by. So if you're, while you're in the conference, you, if you're, if your family is in town, that's sending them, sending them to golden is probably worth at least one good afternoon of happy kids and fatigued, happy and tired mm -hmm. kids. Yeah, that sounds really nice. Yeah, and we all like to ride bikes and stuff. So obviously, there's a ton of that kind of stuff. You know, I went to, um, I've been to Utah a couple times relatively recently, mm -hmm. and I I get a similar sense about Denver. Like in Salt Lake, like everybody was into like skiing, snowboarding, mountain biking, yeah. some kind of outdoor hobby. And there's also a very distinct look of the people in Salt Lake City. Yes, and, and you kind of I share was that just look in Salt too. Lake City. I was just there for two weeks, so this is all very top of mind. I agree okay. completely. Yeah. Yeah, it was really interesting. Um, and I feel like I could fit into that like culture a lot because I'm super into outdoor stuff. But there's yep. there's not quite as much. Obviously, you can ride your bike pretty much anywhere. And I ride my bike here in, in Michigan, but it's a lot of... Uh, a lot of just flat land, maybe not quite as interesting as riding in the uh, mountains. We do have skiing, too. Pretty pretty mm. decent skiing, but I like went skiing in Utah, and then I went skiing here, and I'm like, oh, crap. This is really just not the same. <laughs> it is. 
Yeah, when I I lived in Colorado when I was younger, and then moved to the East Coast, and some friends were going skiing, and they're like, "You should go skiing with us." And I was like, "Great!" So my sister and I went with them, and then we got to the ski resort, and they were like, "We're here," <laughs> and we were like, "Really? But where's the mountain?" And it turns out, yeah, where where was, was that? Because like some of the Northeast has some really good skiing. I understand. Yeah. Yep. This was like a little. This was Liberty Ski Resort in Virginia or West Virginia or Maryland. Um, it's. I had no idea you the, could go skiing in Virginia or even even near that area. It seems yeah. way too warm. It. Uh, they manufacture all of their snow and then they spray it onto the hill and then it freezes into a sheet of ice. Um, <laughs> And then you skate down the ice to the bottom of the hill, and then you do it again. Well, so it's not – I mean, it's, it probably would help someone become pretty good at dealing with ice because I, I remember ice is so rare – not so rare, but it's pretty rare in Colorado. So I never had to get good at figuring out how to, like, confidently deal with the lack of control of riding across ice. So it actually mm-hmm. – like a lot of things, the constraint of it not being a very good ski resort could maybe lead to someone becoming more skilled in subtle ways or something. But it's becoming more skilled because it's difficult and unpleasant, which is not what I was trying to do um, Yeah, with my skiing. Yeah, that kind of, hmm. yeah, interesting. Well, it'd be an enriching experience, at least something, yeah. something much different from what you normally do. Um I want to kind of transition topics a little yeah. bit. I actually that I I, yeah. I read something. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, you go ahead because I didn't really have anything to say. I was just going to make something up. So let's let's go with oh. your thing. Yeah, um, I was going to say on on that note of like a, a difficult like uh, things that are difficult leading to growth. So skiing on ice and trying to not, you know, crack your face open, mm-hmm. uh, leading to you ultimately becoming a better and more proficient skier. I Someone shared something on Twitter the other day. I don't know who it was or how it got into my timeline, because I try to, like, follow almost nobody on Twitter so I don't get random stuff. But they said something, and I'll find it, and I'll send it to you. Um, they said something about... Uh, they're like, my working theory of learning is frustration is a sign of something having gone wrong rather than a sign of something going right. And it was a whole thread, so I'll expand on that. But they're, they're basically saying, like, we often feel like we celebrate people being frustrated by trying to learn something. And you're like, oh, just stick with it. Keep going. And so eventually, like, the, with the idea that when they endure the frustration enough, they've learned, they might push through this, like, you know, wasteland of, um, you know, frustration and then come through on the other side with skills and whatnot. Um, and the rest of the Twitter thread did a really good job of unpacking that, like, if you're frustrated, that means you probably are a little in the, like, there's some mismatch between you and the task at hand. And often, so this hooks back to what we were saying earlier about the role of an educator. They're saying often that's where the person in charge, if, if you have a person in charge of your learning, that's where they should step in and try to reduce the frustration so that you can go back to feeling like productive learning rather than, un, or productive struggle rather than unproductive struggle. Because usually when someone's struggling productively, they don't, they wouldn't self-identify a feeling of frustration. They would say, I'm struggling productively. Um, but once it dips into unproductive struggle, that's when like frustration kind of crops up. And I, I wonder, I would love your thoughts on that because I feel like, I don't know, that that said concisely something that I think I've often intuited to be true, but it never quite come up with a rule of like, if I'm frustrated, I have, something is going wrong and I should examine that in a learning goal or like in, a, in the context of learning. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And I have a lot of thoughts on that whole area. Like, I've had a thought to myself before that like, if you're ever programming and you just get pissed off, you're probably doing something wrong. Um, yeah. Because that's a sign of um, having bad expectations. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, I used to get mad a lot when I would program. Um, I don't really get mad so much anymore because mm. um, 
I never expect anything to go well. <laughs> That's the secret. Just like expect everything. And this sounds like a joke, but it's totally not a joke. Just expect everything to go terrible and not to work because that's how it goes like more than half the time. And so like every time mm -hmm. I make a change and then run a test or refresh my browser or whatever, I never, ever think to myself like, okay, it should work now. Never, because that's terrible. You're just setting yourself up for disappointment. Um, instead, I say, okay, I made a change. Let's see what happens as a result of that change. And either it's going to be, you know, it's going to work or it's not going to work or, or whatever. But I don't make a value judgment and say like, oh, it worked. That's good. Or like, oh, it didn't yeah. work. That's bad. It's yep. like, okay, I made this change. And after I made that change, this thing happened. Okay, I have information now, just neutral information. And then I use that information to do whatever I need to do next. Mm. And looking at it in that way makes the, the process a lot less frustrating. Because frustration comes when you're like, okay, I've tried this 80 times and it didn't work, but now it should work for sure. It should definitely work now. <laughs> you like refresh the page yeah. and it doesn't work and you're like, and it still doesn't. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So that, I try to like train like people that. out of that mindset. Yeah, that you're you're right. It is, of course, it's just just shouldn't use the mm -hmm. word just 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 add a thing that does such and such <laughs> hours later. <laughs> you've earned a new enemy in the world from whoever thought that that would be easy. Mm -hmm. um, that does make sense. Of the two things that you said, I think tie together really well. So the the frustration being a mismatch of expectations between like reality like the expected uh and of course if i expect something to be easy and it's in fact hard <laughs> there's there's some frustration um but then i also like what you said of like something working or not working is neither good nor bad it's just information because how many especially like people that are maybe have traditional schooling in their recent history were used to like good grades being good right it's right there in the word mm -hmm. and bad grades being bad but if i <laughs> Maybe I should have tried this when I was going home and taking my parents some of my grades when I was in high school. Dad, this D isn't bad. It's just information. <laughs> oh, that's great. So it's, I get, like, whereas, of course, now, so he doesn't, like, he knows that I press buttons on a computer and somehow get paid for that. So he's, he's a doctor, not a, or he's, a, he's retired. He used to do a bunch of other stuff. So now I don't tell him about my success or my failures in software development, but If I were to be like, Dad, I spent, you know, a week on this ticket and didn't get it fixed, that would be about the same. Or like, I tried to build this feature, but we ended up, you know, reducing the scope so much because it was so much harder than we thought. Um, like, there's no, I'm not able to take him a D in software development because I can always show like, oh, I learned this new thing. Or like, I still don't know Python, but I got this, little, this cool little app working by following this tutorial. Um, like it, yeah. Yeah. And that's a whole different thing. Like, uh, grades in school versus like, so obviously like the point of grades in school is to try to measure like how well are you doing? Yeah. Um, and grades do a, a perfect job by definition of determining mm -hmm. how well you're, uh, uh, interfacing with that system of grades in school and all that stuff. Right. Yep. Um, but then with programming and maybe with jobs in general, like it's a little bit different because it's not like this artificial measurement system. It's this thing where like you're actually trying to accomplish something. And yeah. how do you know if you're doing a good job or a bad job? And that's actually a really interesting question in itself. How do you know if a development team is doing a good job or a bad job? And I've thought about Oof. this myself. I've never tried to actually put it into words how you can tell. But like, I think one way you can tell is like how happy or frustrated are the stakeholders with the development team? I, I think like yep. kind of the normal case is for everybody to be like kind of pissed off at the development team all the time yep. because everything's yep. taking longer than everybody wants to and stuff like that. So yep. like that's kind of just a sad fact of life that like everybody's always mad at the developers, but you know, Yep. The, there's there's the best development team in the world and there's the worst development team in the world the the best development team in the world maybe they're only a little bit mad at those guys uh mm -hmm. or th those people 
Um, and then you, you can, you can kind of measure like, do I feel like these people are like super mad at me all the time or just a little bit? Again, yep. the, the sad fact is that there's nobody's like super happy with the development team. Um, that's just the no. way it goes, but well, that's one measure, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Or cause you know, you're often told like, Oh, that's a nice feature. We'll slot it in when we can. And so the dev team feels like this, this box that you put requests in and then, it's like a jackbox or like a slot machine of whether or not you get something good back. Yeah. Um, at the the last company that I worked for, um, there's a couple of acquisitions between the product that I worked on and like the name on the paychecks that came my way. So we worked on a product called ThreatSim or Threat Simulation, and it was a simulated. It was a tool for creating and sending simulated phishing attacks as like an educational campaign within a corporation or like educational goals within a corporation so that their employees would be a little bit more sophisticated in their own inboxes because, you know, you could send a high or a low sophisticated fish. And then if they clicked the link, um, it would redirect them to like a, an educational page that would like show the email or, you know, you've got a couple of options, but one of the options was redirect immediately to an educational landing page that would, you know, have a screenshot of the exact email that they got. And then a little like, some tool tips that you could mouse over and see like, Oh, see, like we said we were from apple.com, but if you moused over the, you, the email address, you could see that like we weren't apple.com or we were, you know, redirecting you to something, you know, I am a fish.com, um, for instance. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it was actually extremely effective in going back to like alert. No one felt like they were learning things. They felt like they were just experiencing the world with some knowledge sprinkled in there and um it like like you would there was different ways of like benchmarking a company's sophistication around email and phishing and all of that and the use of this tool would make dramatic improvements um to like employees sophistication so anyway um how do we get into that a fish oh right 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 so um while i was there we the team had been kind of under-resourced for a while. So when I started, I was like, hey, I'm new to the team. I'll just work on bugs for a long time because that's a good way to learn the code base. And there was like 60 of them in the backlog. And some of them were small and some of them were big. And so I just worked through that. And I ended up building a really positive relationship with the support team and the managed services folks. Um, I became kind of like the touch point between there. And like I rebuilt the triage process of how bugs were getting filed and how they would get... um, like closed and all of that stuff. Um, And I ended up being like, normally there was frustration between support and our dev team, uh, but with bi-directional communication. So I'd, I would hear their concerns and sometimes like they have like very nuanced and like deep perspective of the world of the clients. Um, So they had lots of good information. And then I would share with them things that we were doing um, and then the why. So some, you know, we might spend a while on a Rails upgrade, which if you've done it correctly at the end, the app looks exactly the same as it did before. So you're like, you spent how much time and money on this? Mm-hmm. Um, but like, you know, it's <laughs> you can if you explain it a little bit, it makes total sense. That's why you go get an oil change on your car. Um, mm-hmm. So and then I ended up doing something similar with the sales team as well. I would when I would go back to Pittsburgh occasionally, I worked remotely for them. I would always try to spend a half day with one of those two teams. And just that little tiny bit of interest, like walk me through a demo, walk me through your like life cycle of like convert like trying to like sell prospects and like show them the tool and run demos and then eventually get them into like as paying customers. Um, cause there's like little ways in the app that you could like modify like their tools. If they're, you know, an employee running a demo, um, you could like help the demo be a little bit more effective or have them spend less time clicking around. Um, so those two teams, I'm proud to say were never frustrated with us. Once I kind of finished that, they were always like, Oh, you guys care about us. Thank you. And I was like, of course we do. You're <laughs> the ones making all of the money, the sales team and dealing with all of the customers that we piss off the support team. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I've I've kind of, or at least I felt like I have, served in kind of a liaison role in the past, not mm. officially, but just informally between a development team and like a support team or something like that. Yeah. And it can be pretty gratifying because sometimes yeah. they might feel like they have no voice in the development team or something like yes. that. 
And so if you can talk to those people and give them a little bit of, um, uh, I don't know, psychological nourishment or whatever mm-hmm. by just listening to them and maybe nothing even changes as a, as a result, but at least you like listen to them and maybe, like you said, explain some things like this is yeah. why you haven't seen any new features in a month. We were working on this upgrade thing, which is important because of blah, blah, blah. Yep. I think that stuff can go a long way. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, and then, so I've heard... I have some notes that I was taking as we were talking. When mm-hmm. you were talking about um, dev team metrics of success, I've spent a little bit of time thinking about that. And I think, tell me if this sounds like a thing that you've heard of before. There's groups out there. I don't remember even how they define themselves, but I think they like study this topic of like how, to, how do you track an effective and high-performing engineering team or how do you differentiate between a high-performing engineering team and a low-performing engineering team Um, because it's really hard to do that and I've heard that one of the primary correlatory metrics of success not necessarily causal but correlatory Mm -hmm. or correlational um, word yeah yeah at least the root right correlate um, is the release frequency how often do they release code um, to production and I've so on one end you have daily or multiple releases a day and then at the other end you have like maybe one release every couple of weeks and then I think there's also like a defect rate of how often do you have to revert changes and if so a high performing team would have daily or near daily releases or multiple times a day with almost zero like reverts or rollbacks mm-hmm. and for some reason someone has figured out that like that is a, if that is happening, so many other things are going right that you have a high-performing team. It doesn't cause it necessarily, but if you're trying, if maybe it was like um, there's some DevOps handbook, the Phoenix Project, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, have you have you read that? Yeah, yeah. I feel like somewhere in there, like one of the anecdotes that the, they're trying to convey is that like the release the release rate is like the like the sign of a healthy team, obviously not to the exclusion of all else, but it's like one of the big metrics. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense because like you can't, uh, you know, we're talking about continuous deployment basically. And yep, you, yep. you can't practice continuous deployment if you're doing everything else wrong. Yep. Exactly. And like, you're supposed to really like when you're just dealing with like Nate Berkepec talks about this, like queuing theory and stuff. And you're trying to figure out like, is if you imagine your app is like a little factory assembling different things um, or your deployment process also is a little factory or a big factory assembling things. Um, you're not supposed to, my understanding is it's, you're not supposed to have much work in progress or as minimum work in progress as possible. That's the Japan or the Toyota's just in time, like yeah, uh, yeah. stocking strategy. Like you if you just have stuff sitting around, you're, it's not just a neutral, but it's like wasting space and mindshare and it's going out of date and all of that stuff. So the, I, I think the idea of con, rele, daily releases means you have zero work or almost zero work in progress. Let's talk about um, that a little and, bit because that is such yeah. an important principle and I feel like it's violated kind of a lot. Um, yep. Yeah, it's important. <laughs> not by for, myself, even mm-hmm. in my own life, I have too much work in progress sometimes. It's a, yeah, I think I probably do too. <laughs> um, but I think at, at least at work, I do a pretty decent job. Um, and and the reason, or you know, you already said some of the reasons, which obviously I totally agree with. Um, but like, if you have multiple things in progress at a time, you have to switch among them, and you can only work on one thing at a time. And so when yep. those other things are sitting there, that gives you time to like forget the context and stuff like that. And yeah. so then, like, let's say you have tasks A, B, and C. You work on task A for half a day. And then a week later, you come back to task A. And you have to spend so much time just, like, re-familiarizing yourself with all the details of task A yep. uh, for, for a second time. And then if you set it down again and come back to it the following week, you have to re-familiarize, re-familiarize yourself yet a third time and it's just so wasteful it's so much faster yep. just to work on a and only a until it's all the way done yep yep that is i i encountered that exact phenomena recently i put on twitter basically uh like hey i want to how fast do your tests take to run and would you like me to 
profile them and then see if I can also make them run faster for $1,000. Oh, $1, yeah. $1. Did you get any takers um, on that? Yeah, I got three. Nice. It was so cool. It was my first, like, legit... I very much felt like an implementation of that. Uh, there's a meme of a dog behind a keyboard wearing a headset <laughs> yeah. acting like and the caption is i don't know what i'm doing or something like that i very uh-huh. much felt like that because everyone was like great here we'll give you good access and like uh cool have fun and i was like i think i can figure all this out. turns out i can but it took me i had a lot of work in progress because i basically got three people at once um so i started on all three and just like cd'ing between appropriate git repos and like starting and stopping all of the services was was like like just to run the app locally or get the tests or like, you know, some of them are kind of fickle beasts, like with a my, like local MySQL instance, if I'm not running Docker or the test timeout in weird ways or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was very like expensive in Mindshare to switch between them. And then, so I, I one of the first, the first customer um, was making a bunch of network calls to Stripe's uh, test API or development API uh, mm-hmm. in their test, which totally makes sense. So right. I um, wrapped those in VCR, uh, and then when you rerun the tests, instead of making network calls, it was it went from a five minute test harness to like one minute and fifteen seconds um, after just adding VCR around like a, you know correctly around the calls. Um, and so I was like, sweet, huge win! This is awesome. I made the pull request. Um, and then moved on to the next one. Uh, and there was a couple, like, between the founder being in and out for a little bit, like, hey, what if we did it this way instead of this way? Like, you know, the PR slowly changed. Um, and then, but it took so long to get it done just because neither of us were giving it a lot of attention. And then I would make a change and push it. And then, you know, then there was a, merge conflict so i had to rebase it so then i'm in terms of work in progress i spent as long um trying to keep this pull request like mergeable and in good health as i did like making the original pr Mm, so mm -hmm. that second bit of time was just like maintenance work and then you know exacerbated because of the other customers and clients and i in hindsight i was like oh never again will i try to do three things like this Mm -hmm. in parallel even though like like technically they were all relatively easy run the test see where it's slow go investigate like poke around make some notes but i just lost so much time moving between um between those but it was my first time doing something like that it was deeply mm-hmm. educational it worked it was a, it was a ton of fun yeah that's really interesting i've tried to do similar things like that in the past where like hey let me look at your test suite and like help you improve your tests and stuff like that uh i got no takers <laughs> but <laughs> um yeah, I've tried that a few times and it never has worked. So like anytime I see somebody doing something like that, I'm really interested in it because, um, uh, well, I'm, I'm interested to know like what does it take to get that kind of thing to work? And that's a whole different conversation, but it's cool to see that you that you were able to do it. But I wonder if part of the reason it worked is because I possibly gave it away, um, basically gave it away. Like I, I charged, I was like, I originally because I was going to do it with a friend uh, I, he was working on like someone else's project. So I was like, Oh, how about you pay me? I don't know, a hundred bucks and I'll look over your shoulder and work on this. Obviously a hundred dollars is not, uh, is it's not, not sufficient income. for, the, for right. the work. Yeah. <laughs> right. But I was like, you know, I, I was, like I said earlier, gain, like I'm most, I, I don't have a full-time job. I'm doing house projects and like learning projects and stuff. So I'm, you know, not super, uh, sensitive to the exact like dollars per hour, um, you know, rate that I'm getting, but, uh, someone, so I tweeted all that and someone was like a hundred dollars. You should charge at least one to $2,000, maybe mm-hmm. even more. So I was like, okay, let's do a thousand dollars. And then now if I look back at the hours spent, I still haven't cleared a reasonable, uh, market rate, um, oh, wow. even at a thousand dollars. So, cause by the time of like going back and forth with all the PRs and like meetings and chatting with various because some of the problems weren't things that I could easily fix is just identifying like like this setup method is doing a ton of stuff in the database and I and like you know using like custom con, like stuff that you've written uh so another customer was that and then he rewrote one of the like test setup 
steps. It's a very like analytics database heavy um, platform and then reduced a bunch of time. So I wouldn't have been able to make it fast myself, but I was able to shine a very bright spotlight on one particular part of the code. Like if we fix this, 10 of your 20 minutes of test time will go away. Do you feel like that whole thing was a valuable experience in terms of maybe uh, technical lessons and or business lessons that you learned by doing that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I learned a lot of technical. Like I've got a running blog post right now of like all of the lessons that I learned. Because my, my goal in life is to always like show my work enough that someone else could do basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so... With what I've written, I could, if someone else were to like get clone down the repo and check it out to the commit before I did any of my, my work, they would be able to like replicate all of my steps when it comes to profiling, um, which I didn't exactly know how I was going to profile the tests, but I turns out did it in three different ways for each of the mm-hmm. three customers and it worked out fine. Um, and then the actual fixes are also not too, not too bad once you figure out like where the time is being lost. Um, but all of them were also like new to me. So I, I learned a lot technically. I've written a lot of my lessons down, which is also nice. Um, and then as far as like just dealing with customers and clients and like managing expectations and timelines, I've learned so much there. Cause I, it was fun. I would love if there's a way to like, just keep this kind of thing going of figuring out like fair rate for like reasonable work on a comfortable schedule with clients that or customers that delivers a lot of value to them. Um, that's huge. It's just really hard. It's a lot more like iterative and kind of flying by the seat of your pants than I'm yeah. used to. Yeah. That would obviously be, be great. And I spent years trying to get to that place. Um, like I know a guy who spends, I don't know, something a lot less than full-time work doing um, basically advisory work for clients. And he makes a really good income from it, like more than, <laughs> more than most people would make at a regular job. That's and, the dream. Work a little bit and make a ton of money so you can do other stuff with your life. That's, that's my dream. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the, um, the ultimate success would be zero work for infinite money. That's like yeah. the, the asymptotical <laughs> yeah. goal. But yep. um, yeah, like I spent a long time pursuing you know, pursuing that asymptote, as I put it, um, which obviously you'll never get, get to that, but you can do something really good. Like my objective was to somehow get paid for uh, counsel as opposed to labor. And yeah. so like, I got kind of close to that with the teaching stuff, you know, like you fly somewhere, teach a class, fly back and you don't have any strings attached or lingering responsibility after that class is delivered. And there was yeah. something really attractive to that, uh, really attractive about that to me. And then mm. there's this guy I have been, I've been reading his work for years, Alan Weiss. Um, mm. Oh yeah, I just read my first book by him. Oh, what was it? Uh, Million Dollar Consulting. Yeah, that's like his flagship book. And you know, yep. the first time I read that book, I thought it sucked. And then I went back and read it like five years later and I thought it was brilliant because it turns out that I just like wasn't in a place in my career where I could like understand the lessons in that book yet. Um, But yeah, he, Alan Weiss, he'll like, he'll have arrangements with his clients where like his clients will pay him 10,000 bucks a month just for the privilege of being able to call him on the phone sometimes. And there's literally no other responsibilities besides that. And sometimes the client won't even call him at all in a month, which is actually bad because you don't want your client to, to like never feel like they Forget need about you. you. Yeah, yeah. Right. And then they're like, why, why did I spend $10,000 on this guy? This right. Month? Yeah. Um, and yeah, like he says in his, his book, he makes over a million dollars a year and he works like less than full time is my understanding. Yep. So yep. that seems pretty great. Extremely few developers have figured out how to do anything close to that. Like most uh, freelance developers, they're just yeah. hourly employees. Um, they, they call themselves consultants or whatever, but really they're just yep. hourly employees. Yep. And that's what Do I you know, like slowly figured out over the years, and that's kind of why I quit freelancing. Yep. Yep. Do you know Eric Dietrich? He writes it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't remember. The, maybe like he wrote a book called Developer Hegemony. Yeah. Um, stuff like that. Yeah. He, 
he talks exactly that. He's like, most contractors are just laborers. If it's dollars, dollars per hour, you are playing such and such game, regardless of, you know, W2 or I9 or... Right. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of sad. Like I had this picture painted, this very vague picture painted in my head of like this lifestyle that I could have if I became a freelancer. And then I slowly yeah. realized, like as I met more and more people, I'm like, wait a second, these people don't have it figured out. They're actually yep. like doing something that's not meaningfully different. And in order to in order to have a lifestyle that's like way different and better, like you have to do something completely different. You have to like. Well, I don't know. Like, I think the people who are successful with these kind of things are, like, people who have written popular books and, like, they do all yep. the speaking and stuff like that. And that's fine, and you can do that, and I was headed in that direction. But it's, it's a totally different thing that almost no developers are actually doing that lifestyle. Like, on the path to that. Like, I, I feel like you, you, like, you might disagree or you might agree, but I feel like you're on that path because you wrote your book on testing and you've got the podcast of, like, because a lot of what businesses pay for is like risk reduction. Um, like, you know, risk is priced into like financial things that you buy all the time um, at like a business level. So if you're the expert in something when they need a low risk or like a zero risk expert, like that's how you become the person that, you know, 10 minutes on the phone is worth thousands of dollars. Uh, I, and yeah. I think it's, it's counterintuitive because you wouldn't give different advice before and after like writing a book on that particular topic, right? Like, but to them, they need, you know, if they're about to do a huge push that, you know, puts a lot of money and like, uh, hours at, at risk or at in play like that, that's a, that's a risky play. And you can, if you can help them reduce it, I feel like that's a lot of, a lot of potential value. Yeah, I, and they need they need two things. They need to know they need some way to know that you're good or some way to believe that you're good and mm-hmm. they need to know you exist. And, and yep. both those things like there was a point in time when I was trying to raise my freelancing rate for from 100 bucks an hour to 150 an hour and yeah. I had a really hard time. I I like hit a ceiling at 100 bucks an hour cuz that's where like yep. perceived market rates were at the time. And yep. people would ask me like, "Why should I pay you so much more than I pay my other developers. And I yep. didn't have an answer. And so that's like when I realized that in order to get to those rates that are above market rate, you have to have an answer to that question of why they yep. should pay you more than the other people. And if you yep. have like books and you've spoken at conferences and all that stuff, then you kind of have a reason. And actually the question goes away because yep. you never find yourself in that situation. Well, I shouldn't say never, but instead of finding yourself in that situation where you're knocking on someone else's door and saying, please hire me, people come to you and they knock on your door and they say, may I please engage your services? Right. At whatever the, the, the cost of the project is. I, I feel like that's where project-based billing comes in as well, instead of hourly. Cause if like, let's say the client will pay eight hours at $150 an hour, that's what? 1200 bucks. Um, or eight hours at a, hundred dollars an hour that's 800 bucks but if so if they bring you a project and you bill them 1500 dollars, they don't know if it's gonna if that's because you're gonna spend a day and a half on it or a day or a week or an hour like they're spending 1500 dollars and walking away with like the finished product or you're you're building it so i i hear and that's what i was trying to do when i put a fixed price around this audit i was like oh if i get good at this audit thing um i can reduce my as, as I get more experience at it, I can raise the rates and hopefully reduce the amount of time per audit. And then that would, you know, cause that would lead to effective growth in my hourly rate without ever having to talk about my hourly rate with the people that would be paying for that particular service. That's the dream. Haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. Yeah. That seems good. And I understand again, to bring up Nate Berkebeck again, he does stuff like that. He does performance consulting and I don't know the details of how he does that, but I understand that it's, that it's kind of similar. Well, I guess I'm just guessing, but I think it's similar in that like you're paying for a result rather than paying for hourly labor or something like that. Exactly. Exactly. And there's this, um, you know, some developers have fallen into what I see as an unfortunate trap where like they start to believe that this 
they, they, they see the benefits of value-based billing, yep. but then they conflate value-based billing with fixed bid projects. Yes. Because like it's extremely rare that a client will come to you with a need and that need is truly in terms of a business outcome. Usually when somebody has a need for a developer, they have a developer-shaped hole and they want to fill that slot with a developer and they are not open to any other kind of arrangement. And no other kind yep. of arrangement would even make sense because it's it's not like you're going to do this coding project and the outcome is going to be they'll increase their conversion rate from 3% to 4% or something like that. Right. Almost right. always the coding work is super, super distant from the business outcome. And you won't you won't even have any way to tell like whether it went well or badly or something like that. They just need somebody to build features. And so like if you try to talk to those people about business outcomes and value-based billing and stuff like that, it's just not gonna connect at all and it doesn't work. And if you I've made this mistake before of like uh, doing fixed bid projects thinking to myself that I'm doing value-based billing, it's really just fixed bid projects. And like, there's nothing necessarily wrong about that if you understand all the risks and all that stuff. But if you yep. fool yourself into doing one thing, when you think you're doing the other thing, it's probably going to be bad. Yep. Yep. Yeah, man, that is... And there's, it feels like there's a gravitational, hole, like a uh, gravity well towards hourly work that it, I've, I feel come up in conversations all the time with people when I'm talking about potentially doing work with them. Um, and it's common, but it, it's hard. Like I, I have to keep like channeling my inner Alan Weiss to try mm -hmm. to like push back a little bit of like, okay, so, and what I'll usually say is like, okay, so if you're comfortable at 10 hours a week, um, like, you know, what you're playing with, that's about X thousands of dollars per month. So let's, what's a project that would fill that scope? Like let's, uh, uh, in a way that like makes sense. Cause I'm, I'm a, cause, and then I'll say like, cause then I'll just send you like an invoice. So like, we'll pay up front. You'll, you know, X, you pay me and then I'll do the work. And then, you know, at the end of the month, we'll, cause my goal is to try to just keep in a perfect world. I would get, you know, a couple grand a month from a couple of different customers minimizing work in progress, but then like get to be built, like delivering substantial business value to them on a schedule that like makes sense um, to me. And that's why I'm trying to get away from the hourly things. I know early on, I'm going to do a lot more work than a certain number of hours as I'm trying to build up a mental model of like the product and the, the business domain and the, the problem that I'm trying to save or solve. And then as that kind of titrates off and I get closer to a solution, I don't want to be like, well, now I don't get paid anymore because I figured out the solution. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a little tough. Um, I, I had like a similar vision when I first started freelancing because I had worked at agencies before and I saw like, okay, this agency has several dozen clients or whatever. And then like my day-to-day -day work, like I'll work on client A for a while, work on client B for a while, that kind of thing. And I, I envisioned my own freelancing being like a miniature version of that agency. But yep. then I realized a couple things. One is... When an organization finds a good developer, they want all that developer's time. Yes. Which makes total sense. Like, why would you not want to just get all that developer's time instead of just getting a slice? Um, so that was an obstacle. Um, and then, like, on the flip side of it, like my end, there was one point where I was working for eight clients at once, and it was a nightmare. I just, like, hated my life during that time. Oh, that sounds terrible. Yeah, and it was not all the same kind of work, but like it was, it was totally bad. Um, and so then I, you know, because I wanted to limit my risk, you know, I wanted it so that if one client went away, I wouldn't be totally without an income. Yep. But then my opinion changed. The way to limit my risk isn't to have multiple clients simultaneously, it's to have a strong marketing engine or whatever you want to, whatever term yes. you want to use. So that if your income goes away because you lose your one and only client, um, then you can go and pick up another client quickly. And that's so much better anyway than, than having to work for multiple clients at once. Yeah. So you can deliver really like outsized results to every single person you work with. And maybe it's a short engagement. And so then it's no stress to either one of you. Like I feel like the best 
people that do this are easy in and out. They're like, yep, you got a problem. This is the thing that I'm known to solve. I'll come solve it quickly and then like wash hands of it. We're done. And you're like, great. Like I, when I had, when I call a plumber over to my house and he does a thing, like I don't need an ongoing work relationship with him. I do. He's, I had the plumber here in golden Gary at circle H plumbing. Mm-hmm. He's great. Um, and so he's the only plumber in my mind that I will ever call for any problems. But fortunately, and hopefully most of the time, I don't have a lot of plumbing work that needs to get done. So there's no reason, like he's not trying to become a generalist handyman. He's like, I'm the best plumber that you'll meet and I can solve all of your plumbing problems. And I kind of want to be the same kind of no frills version of a software developer of like, yeah, I don't do generalist stuff, but like these things I do really well. And if you need that, let's talk. And if you don't need that, um, like I can maybe make a recommendation. I found myself unintentionally like becoming a, almost a recruiter for a couple of companies because they'll hiring is hard. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll tell me about like current or future open roles, and I know you know I've got a bunch of friends in the in the industry, so I always try to like make useful recommendations. But I I find that like the value I create with one good introduction is so much more than the value I can create in like a day of writing code because you know, if that leads to like their good founding engineer hire, like that's company yeah. transforming. Yeah. And that can be, that's true. And that's why like recruiters can get a $20,000 check for just uh, helping you hire one employee. Um, oh, it's insane. I'm like, yeah. man, should I have gotten into recruiting instead of software? Like, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot but of also that's, around that. Yeah. That's super, super hard job. I don't envy that those people at all for, for the difficult yep. job they have to be do. They have yep. to do anyway. Um, this, uh, if there's ever a good time for a production issue, an urgent production issue to pop up, uh, this is convenient because we're right at the tail end of the episode, and I just got a uh, phone call that something urgently needs my oh, attention. Perfect. Yeah. Well, then this is great. So, thank you for having me on the podcast. I, yeah. And thank you for writing a book about testing. As I was, I never quite got to a point where I had to rewrite tests, but I was very excited to get to apply all of your testing knowledge to my customers' problems. And there's Hopefully, still there will be room to do that as we go down the road. But um, yeah, yeah thank and you for, for my time. for my own ego and my uh, been uh, improving the book over time. Also, I'd love to hear about what that stuff is. Maybe we can reconnect another time and talk. Um, but Absolutely. one last question I want to ask you is: Where can people go to find you online? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at I think Josh underscore works. Josh underscore. Yep, Josh underscore works or. Mm-hmm. Uh, my website is josh.works, which who knew that dot .works was a TLD, but it is. Um, or my um, primary place where I'm trying to teach Rubyists more things is at intermediateruby.com. So that's where a lot of my, I'm trying to bring all of my technical stuff over to there and write pretty detailed guides and walkthroughs and various. So Awesome. We'll put one all of those stuff two in the... three places. Okay. Yeah. We'll put all that stuff in the show notes. And Josh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, Jason, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We'll talk soon.